Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Coming up on this week's episode, Associate Producer McKenna Langley and I will be joined by Elliot Cook, the Director of Real Estate for Downtown Strategies. This is part of our ongoing interview series from ICSC, all recorded last week. Elliot will talk about maximizing downtown real estate for what he calls tertiary markets or really small to mid-sized markets and what small and mid-sized downtowns could or should do to activate vacant properties for retailers and for restaurants. We'll also talk about some of the factors that go into attracting maybe regional credit or national credit retailers into those downtown spaces. In news, we'll talk about a somewhat perplexing strategy going forward for Big Lots. And in looking ahead, an old department store banner could be revitalized by a new owner. Well, a quick reminder that you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast, both Instagram and Twitter. Uploaded a few pictures from ICSC last week on our Instagram page. So in news, we had a lot to choose from. There were a lot of earnings calls late last week. We got confirmation just generally speaking on the macro level on what could be reasonably expected given the current circumstances. Earnings surprises were positive for Dollar General and Dollar Tree. Customers seem to be increasingly seeking those lower price points and shorter shopping trips amidst what has become quite an inflationary environment. It seems as though early returns on Dollar Tree's $1.25 price point have at least worked from the business perspective. Costco, too, seems to be providing a value proposition to customers as they posted a positive beat, customers potentially attempting to save by buying in bulk and continuing those bulk purchasing habits they started during the pandemic. Meanwhile, specialty retailers fell short of expectations. There were a few exceptions there. Dix revised their full year guidance downward. Hibbit slightly missed, although still had strong baseline numbers if you're looking at sales there. Gap came up short, as did off-price retailer Burlington. But there were some notable exceptions and standouts. Macy's in the department store space posted nearly a 32% beat. It's kind of started people talking about whether this was another flash in the pan for them or if it's truly a sign of a turnaround that's now been rumored for, well, about eight years Ulta absolutely killed it. We'll talk about them a little bit later on, just briefly, but they beat on earnings by 42%. And then the retailer that takes over our news section this week, Big Lots, in an environment where they should see at least some success based on their consumables section and their treasure hunt concept. Admittedly, the treasure hunt part is a smaller portion of their store than in years past. Customers' lack of spend on big ticket items proved too much of a headwind in the recent quarter. And as a result, there was a massive miss. Zach's consensus estimates for Big Lots sat at earnings of $0.89 per share. However, their adjusted per share numbers came in negative at a loss of $0.39. And their overall business strategy, kind of something we wondered aloud about last year in a looking ahead segment, given inflation expectations, given the anticipation from multiple researchers that customers in 2022 would reduce spending on some of the larger ticket items, durable goods, and so forth, might not have been a wise short-term decision for Big Lots to increasingly move away from their off-price selection and instead double down on furniture, especially in some of their 
new footprints and some of their renovations. And at least in the first quarter, this concept was backed up. Now, the primary sales shortfalls came in April for them. They actually said February and March were roughly in line with expectations. But these sales shortfalls that took place in April led to markdowns in an attempt to drive traffic and also clear out some inventory. That, in turn, negatively impacted margins. In fact, it could impact margins for quite some time going forward. They called for aggressively right-sizing inventory, that's a direct quote, over the course of the second quarter. And as a result, even going forward, they expect gross margin rate to dip into the low 30s. For comparison, it was 36.7% for them in the first quarter and 40.2% going back to last year's first quarter. So overall, you're going to see margins slimming somewhat for big lots as they attempt to clear out some of this inventory, which is kind of the opposite problem of what we've been hearing from most retailers, which is that they can't bring inventory in fast enough. Now, Big Lots is hoping to reclaim some of the margin pressure by capitalizing on continued increasing inventory opportunity as it pertains to closeouts elsewhere. As we've talked about with other off-price retailers, because of supply chain backups, because of issues across the retail sector in multiple different areas, they are seeing very good deals out there in terms of closeouts, and they're looking to capitalize on those which would mean maybe a reversion back to their business model of even three to four years ago. But we'll get to that in a second. Nowhere in their release did they address comp numbers specifically. They chose to only call out three-year stack comps in the prepared release and many of the prepared remarks. However, if you dig, you'll find that comps for the first quarter were down 17% over the first quarter of 2021. Some of this is expected given the lapping of stimulus payments in 2021. We expected to see a number of retailers maybe go negative in comps during this past fourth quarter, but that's a massive rough patch for them comp-wise. Comps have now fallen for big lots in four straight quarters. They gave their forecast in three-year stack terms as well, not breaking out the single year, but when you do parse it out, when you get into the single-year expectations. They project mid- to high-single-digit negative comps versus a 2021 that was actually negative in itself for the second quarter. Leadership on the call did everything they could to talk around the rough financial numbers, as they are wont to do for any company. They talked about some of the highlights. Bruce Thorne, president and CEO, began prepared remarks by highlighting their net promoter score going up, their e-commerce penetration going up. It's now up to 7%, which Still lags a lot of more mature retailers as far as e-commerce is concerned, but a positive sign for Big Lots since this number was under 5% a little over a year ago. He also trumpeted Broyhill and their real living brands making up over one-fifth of their total sales. He also noted that during May, numbers ticked back up somewhat after that lag in April to now where you're looking at three-year stacks for comps in the mid-teens for the second quarter. However, This seems to be little consolation given the large macro challenges facing them. He did mention that in addition to some of the markdowns that they discussed, they raced to go back to kind of promote some value offerings to customers. This is what brought about some of that positive change in May, or so they think. They believe the slowdown he mentioned to be a result of inflationary pressure. Well, that's uh, almost a given, I would think, in this climate, but My question is really this. If everyone and their dog saw the inflationary environment coming 
and saw an aversion to durable goods as a result, it remains to be seen how this adjustment wasn't made more quickly. This adjustment to more value offerings for consumers wasn't made more quickly or maybe sooner in the year. Considering they were pretty resolute in staying their course after their last fiscal year and they talked more about their increasing furniture mix in their Investor Day presentation in January, Thornton closed the early remarks by confirming that they do see a challenging environment ahead and the need for prudent management. One could say that what we've seen so far from them is a little bit reactionary rather than getting in front of the curve. All that being said, their category mix was still heavily tilted towards furniture in the first quarter. Furniture accounted for 29% of big lot sales in the quarter. Seasonal was up to 17%. Food and consumables combined to provide 24% of sales. But when you look at the overall sales for big lots coming off of last year, furniture sales down slightly, food and consumables down slightly as well. Furniture made up 30% of sales in 2021, food and consumables 26% of sales. Part of this is due to their spring seasonal mix increase, which you typically see a little bit of a spring seasonal bump, but overall seasonal comping out really well. But when you look at furniture, furniture is now comping out negative 4% on a three-year stack, which is insane given where sales were at in 2021 for furniture to the extent that, again, a lot of the renovations that Big Lots was doing around highlighting furniture in their stores, making it easier for people to pick up furniture, a lot of their new stores as well, augmented furniture sections. Seasonal comps, meanwhile, over that time, they're up 24%, which is certainly a positive for them. And you'd have to think that summer seasonal and fall seasonal, as they try to claw and scrape back some of those sales numbers, are going to be a focal point for big lots. And you'll see a lot of marketing, I would guess, around those seasonal items coming up. So we talk about furniture declining in terms of overall sales. We're talking about it comping negative 4% on the last three years, despite it being the cornerstone of their growth platform. So what has all this done to their store growth plans? You'll recall something we talked about earlier in the year, but if you didn't tune in for that podcast, they forecasted 500 plus potential new locations during their investor presentation in January. Now, this is a long-term goal. You're looking over the next five to 10 years. Currently, they have just shy of 1,500 locations, right around 1,430 locations. Much of this growth was expected in mid or small size markets, the same markets that we'll talk about here in just a moment with Elliot Cook. But immediate plans for big lots called for 50 plus net new stores in 2022. And we talked to a number of folks, including a few at ICSC, that have either seen interest from big lots in their strip centers or have LOIs or agreements or leases in place for big lots to move into their strip centers. And our first thought after this earnings call from big lots is maybe if they would consider trimming back some of their opening plans, given Thorne's reference to the challenging environment. And it's true. When you hear some of the analyst Q&A on this call, some of these strip center operators may be waiting a bit longer for Big Lots to come in as a tenant. As Thorne said that they are curtailing CapEx associated with new openings and remodels. We already saw this in the first quarter, by the way. They had net openings of just three stores, which is paltry when you consider they were anticipating 50 or more during the course of the year. So some openings were pushed back from 2022 to 2023 where possible. 
Overall CapEx expectations now hover around $175 million versus original guidance of $210 to $230 million for the year. Now, when asked during the analyst Q&A on the call, Thornton did say briefly that they still believe in their long-term growth opportunity. They do want to pick up the pace of openings when possible. And they were asked, well, what does when possible mean? What would it take to reaccelerate the store openings? Basically, the answer between he and their CFO was that if sales look good in the next few months, they'll retain some of their 2023 expansion plans. But if not, they'll continue to scale back. Basically, they need to see sales improvement in order to do so. And I think the big question coming out of this, and this is a question that all three of us that work on this podcast had, is you have this reaction to poor sales, which in and of itself was a reaction to an apparent lack of foresight by the organization, something that many people were saying was going to happen this year, seemed to catch Big Lots a little bit off guard. So does this reaction risk leaving Big Lots out of the running as far as some of the CRE dance partners or commercial real estate dance partners that are out there. Some of the key themes at ICSC that we heard last week, low inventory right now, record low construction. These are backed up numbers from CBRE and other researchers. There's lots of competitors right now for the types of spaces that Big Lots is desiring. We also heard multiple times from both retailers and landlords that it's a landlord's market currently. So if Big Lots is saying, okay, wait, we've got to tail back some of our opening plans because we're not selling quite as well as what we thought early on in 2022, does that position them in a much worse way for 2024 and 2025 when maybe you see things turn back around in terms of sales of some of these key categories for Big Lots? Moreover, if they wait another year or another two years to ink these leases, we're seeing inflation hit retail lease agreements as well. Leases are going up by the day, it seems like, the amount per square foot going up by the day. So is this going to cost Big Lots money in the long term by not investing now when they have money to invest, but they feel as though they need to curtail some of those investments until sales get back on the right track? So I think that's a big question you have to ask for Big Lots. They might be costing themselves significant amounts of money long term, and ultimately, when they go to finally move into these stores in late 2023 or 2024, 2025, or whenever this is that they've delayed the store openings, they might not find their selection of ideal real estate as forthcoming as what it might be currently, especially with these record low construction numbers, especially with occupancy rates so, so high in these retail centers, in the B-class retail centers that Big Lots wants to be in. But ultimately, you have to ask, well, is waiting going to press them into some lower class centers in 2024 or 2025? And all of this is happening despite their new stores, the stores that they're opening, beating internal expectations with conversion rate and basket size. They are paying themselves back sooner than expected. Big Lots even said themselves on the call, one of the top reasons their customers stopped shopping at Big Lots over the last three, four years is because they moved away from what was their closest store and there was no Big Lots store near newer developments. So are they risking losing out on some of these newer customers with well-performing stores by just not spending the money now even though sales are down? You have to question the long-term strategy of Big Lots as it seems that they're bouncing around very, very quickly. I guess credit to them for adjusting, but again, they're adjusting to something that 
nearly everyone felt was coming along. And you can't help but think that maybe this plan by Big Lots to postpone moving into some of these markets where people are moving to, and something, again, we'll talk with Elliot about here in a second, might leave Big Lots a little bit out of the picture and also restrain their future market share. Just something to think about going ahead for this particular retailer. Now, before we get to our interview, did want to shout out Ulta. What a quarter for Ulta. Their comp sales increased 18%. This is on top of 65.9% increases last year. Of course, saw a big decline in 2020 as a lot of their stores were forced to close. But overall, on that three-year stack basis, if we're going to use the same stack basis that Big Lots used, nearly 50% increases in comps for Ulta. 10% increase in this latest quarter in transactions, 7.3% increase in average ticket. Overall, it seems as though they are doing all kinds of great things from a retail perspective, but also from a financial perspective. Selling general and administrative expenses decreased as a percentage of sales. Pre-opening expenses per store decreased for Ulta. So overall, just a fantastic quarter for them. Gotta tip your cap to Ulta despite some inflation, some measure of inflation in the beauty sector. Their gross profit actually year over year increased in part due to the fact that they were able to scale up on those sales. And I don't think that's something we're going to hear a lot about as cost of goods sold is slated to increase. But also shout out to them. They opened 10 new stores across the country, pretty much located coast to coast, relocated six stores as they continue on with their store opening plans, unlike Big Lots, which are scaling those back. So I just wanted to give credit where credit is due. Ulta delivered on a fantastic quarter, and credit to them, one of the best-performing retailers, really, when you zoom out and look over the last 10 years. Now, coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Elliot Cook. Once again, he is the Director of Real Estate for Downtown Strategies. We're going to talk about maximizing downtown real estate from a retailer's perspective and from a city's perspective. And we're going to talk about why millennial and Gen Z shoppers really thirst for vibrant downtown areas, regardless of market size. We continue our ICSC interview series, and we're pleased to be joined by Elliot Cook, who's the Director of Real Estate with Downtown Strategies, a subsidiary of Retail Strategies. We talked a little bit about small and mid-sized markets earlier this month on the podcast, but now we're going to get into the downtown of those markets, and it's an exciting topic for us to cover, but we thank you for joining us here on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks, Trent. All right, so the first question is... Downtown Strategies, a subsidiary of Retail Strategies. We know a little bit about what Retail Strategies does. What does Downtown Strategies do? Yeah, coming out of Retail Strategies, which obviously is a national retail recruitment firm, there was this passion, and with a lot of the communities we work with across the country, there was this focus towards downtown. We've got these downtown properties that are vacant, underutilized. We would love to see retail come back to our main street, come back to the courthouse square. How do we do that? And as you probably all know, national retailers have a very specific site criteria that they have to have that oftentimes does not cater to a main street or to a historic downtown, especially in smaller markets. So that's where Downtown Strategies actually was born. And we actually create a five-year strategic plan. So it goes into real depth of things that are actually approachable. We have a market-based approach. 
We want to take data. We want to take the assets that you have, you know, the foundation that you already have, and we want you to take that next step over the next five years. Right. So building off of that, what are the size of communities that you serve and what sizes of communities are we seeing really a flow towards as far as maybe even if not national credit, regional credit tenant retailers yeah. towards those downtown areas? You know, it's funny. It's in the pandemic is obviously, as Lacey may have said to you, the pandemic is the great accelerator. I'm sure we've all seen that, witnessed that, and things that were going to happen over the next decade really got charged into the last two years. So to talking about the markets where we work, we work in markets of 1,200 people. We work in markets of over 100,000, 200,000 people. You know, 50,000, to answer your question, is where you're going to see a lot more investment. You're seeing it through the pandemic. A lot of people, millennials, as Gen Z is starting to come up through college, where we think that they will end up, is oftentimes going to be in the tertiary markets outside of major metro areas. Anyone that wants to invest in their downtown, whether they have one or not, invest in placemaking or revitalize the infrastructure of their downtown, they stand to do it. And we can talk you know, at length for the reasons why. So as you get into a downtown area or you start to have a dialogue with the city, what's oftentimes maybe the first or second thing that needs to be addressed? You talk about a five-year plan, but what are we tackling in year one, year two here? You know, I will tell you there's multiple answers here, but first off, who is your team? When you talk about a downtown stakeholder, is the mayor on board? Do you have a downtown director? Are you a Main Street program, a Main Street community? You know, who are the stakeholders, the business interests? Do you have an active chamber, those groups? How are they all working in conjunction with each other? Or are they at odds with each other? And then secondly, I come at this as the director of real estate. You know, what is your gross leasable area of your downtown? Do you even know how much vacancy you have? Do you even know how much square footage you have in your downtown that you could backfill? You know, I always say with the community where we work, if I move to your community tomorrow, where could I open a coffee shop in 90 days? You know, in the same way you would write a 10-year lease or something like that. What is your most accessible property? Because oftentimes it's the catalyst properties, those large former department stores or a former bank that gets all the focus. When there are real opportunities, they're much smaller square footage and don't need as much capital investment to you know, house a tenant. Now, similar to getting everyone on the same page, most downtowns, not, not all, but most downtowns, sure. especially of this market size, have a wide diversity of property owners in the downtown area. Some families might have owned a property for 80 years. Maybe it's dilapidated. Maybe they just stopped keeping it up. Some might be newer investors that are coming in seeking to fix things up. How do you get all of the property owners from a real estate perspective on the same page? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that is at the heart of the issue with almost every Main Street community across the country. The way we go back to it is literally talking about a downtown property inventory, like I just mentioned, figuring out all of your properties, figuring out the owner, the ownership. Sometimes that ownership is in a portfolio, like you mentioned, someone who's out of town or somebody has gotten it because of a will or the lack of a will, things of that nature. And then obviously you do have people who are using it as tax write-offs or it's a, a shelter for them holding knickknacks and things like that. So you have to have an inventory. You have to have conversations. You have to figure out which properties are for lease, for sale, and the ones that are not. Why is that? And what is the opportunity for them to change hands or be activated with a future lease? 
imagine that's the first and probably most important step to the five-year plan, but would you be able to walk us through the high-level overview of that five-year plan that you run through in yeah, each town? Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of have, within that strategic plan, we think of things in the next five years, but we want at the beginning, in the first year or less than a year, especially with things that could take limited to zero capital investment. Obviously, there is you know sweat equity and things like that that are taken into account, but what are the policy initiatives that you could change or embolden in your community? Creating a TIF, Tax Increment Financing District, creating an overlay district where it's appropriate, a bid, things of that nature. Also talking about facade grant programs, or you know all of these other historic tax credit programs, things like that that the city can do to really incentivize property owners as well as the area around the downtown to really embolden itself. Also infrastructure, things of that nature as well to really take that next step. So the sheet that you have in front of you talks a little bit about walkability of yes. downtown. And I know from talking to those in smaller to mid-sized markets sure. that are looking to revitalize their downtown, walkability comes up. These Gen Zers, these millennials that are moving back to these small communities, they want that walkability. That's exactly so, right. so I guess the, the $10 million question here is, if you have a community that might not be all that walkable, maybe it's not all that downtown centric, how do you go back and kind of revitalize that walkability of that downtown area? Yeah, if you don't know your community's walk score, you need to know it. Within urbanism or downtown redevelopment, having that walk score is so important. Our company is more than willing to give any of you a complimentary walk score to know that. I have kind of, in doing this over the last couple of years, have learned that if your community has a walk score over 80, it is ripe for redevelopment from outside development for mixed-use properties, things of that nature. But figuring out there's lots of money, whether it be through the American Rescue Plan and other money that is out there, investing in infrastructure, connecting your assets. If I didn't have a car in your community, how many things you know in my life could I walk to feasibly in a 20-minute walk time? And then what is your system of sidewalks, what's your system of pathways, trailways, and how connected are they to your parks and your, your ball fields and the courthouse and all of those amenities as well. That's how you can really improve that score. And there are lots of strategies to get there. So let's talk now about the mix in terms of a downtown area, because obviously we talk a lot about mixed use development. It seems to be all the rage sure. now in commercial real estate. That goes for downtown as well. How can you underscore the importance of a proper mix to where you don't just have a downtown with 12 clothing boutiques and nothing else? I feel very strongly as someone who lives in the downtown of the community where I reside that nothing proves a downtown better than the people that live in it. So anything you can do to activate the second or third story of buildings for residential use, you mentioned mixed-use development, you know, new development, things of that nature, but anything you can do to get more people living in that area, if you have a perception of crime, if you have a perception that the streets roll up after six, those things change when you have people there 24 hours a day, whether they're working during the day in offices or the people that are living there on the Sunday when it's quiet or the Friday evening when it's quiet. That obviously, you know, in the world of real estate, being at the ICSC show, Everyone here is talking about traffic counts and they're talking about parking lots and things like that. Traffic and parking is certainly important in a downtown, but having people that can walk to these amenities, can be your daily shopper, can be your daily consumer, that will absolutely help bring that vibrancy you know, and have that 24-hour downtown that all of you are looking for. 
So when you look at the landscape of small to mid-size markets in general in the United States, many of them have survived this long because of, or in part because of, the presence of a college, university, something along those lines. What are things that you've seen communities do to kind of connect the downtown retail with a university that might not be downtown? Yeah, that's a really great point. We work with actually multiple communities that are coming to mind right now that there wasn't a really strong town and gown presence. In fact, at one point, there was kind of a move to move students out of the downtown because of them being a a late night nuisance or something along those lines. The president of Downtown Strategies, Jen Gregory, she lives in Starkville, Mississippi, which is where Mississippi State University is located. So this is something we focus on every single day. And she has worked with and been instrumental in her community and continuing to connect those things. But once again, having services that cater to Gen Z, like you mentioned, going to be post-Gen Z here soon. And then also, whether it be a bus system, whether it be bike paths, you know, anything you can do to kind of build synergy between those two locations is just going to make it more connected. I feel very confident, and we can talk more about this, about the millennials, the Gen Zs, they expect a downtown that offers vibrancy, that offers amenities, things like that. So they're looking for it. So anything you can do to connect the two is going to be of paramount importance to your university as well as your downtown of your community. Let's go ahead and and talk on that note really quick because we've talked about millennials, Gen Zers moving to these rural areas, especially since the start of the pandemic. What do those type of populations expect beyond just walkability? Sure. You know, I think we need to take a step back and think back to, you know, kind of the historical trends of downtowns. My generation, I'm a millennial, I'm 34, we saw the revitalization of downtowns, large and small, across the country. The communities that were on the forefront of doing this over the last decade or so. When we talk about Gen Z, as they are going to be entering the workforce here soon, it's important to think about that they, over the last decade, have grown up with this. They are the first generation, really since probably the 60s or 70s, that all they knew was a cool downtown. They grew up with a phone in their hand, taking you know Instagram pictures or Snapchats in front of those murals that we all painted over the last decade. Or you know some of them grew up having birthday parties at breweries, which to my generation was inconceivable, right? So that being said, that generation is the first generation in a long time to grow up comfortable with the urban area. And they expect it, they want it, this is where they wanna live. They want a global experience, even in a small community. They want an experience in general. And the more you can do to cater to those groups, this is pre-pandemic, there is a pie chart from the Brookings Institute from like July of 2019. And in July of 2019, Millennials, Gen Z, and post-Gen Z create over 50% of the U.S. population. That being said, your downtown needs to at least cater to or have something as an amenity that attracts those groups because they are the future of your community. They're the ones that you can capture to get to either stay there, move back there, or ultimately are the ones who are going to want to open those cool you know, entrepreneurial businesses in the future. So there are lots of ways to go about that from a real estate standpoint, from a design standpoint, and all those types of things. But it is essential that you think about it within your Main Street. Keeping in mind that you're catering to Gen Z, millennials, what kind of intersection have you seen between the older generation 
in the younger generation as far as what they're looking for in a downtown area? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. And a lot of times when we handle going into new communities and we do a visioning workshop, talking with stakeholders in the community about what they want to see, we have this conversation and older populations are you know, they kind of take that as that they are being forgotten or those things. And that's not the case at all. Ultimately, if there is that historic business that has been there for the last 50 years, all these efforts are just to make them stronger. We want to build up buildings, you know, and amenities, murals, you know, streetscape improvements, things like that, that just make more people want to go to those businesses. When we talk about types of businesses, I always talk about health and fitness, I talk about new experiences within restaurants and whatnot. You know, those cater to everyone. A lot of the communities where we work are family communities. We get a lot of questions about family entertainment. Obviously, coming out of the pandemic, that's going to be a little bit slower when we see new movie theaters open and, you know, indoor kind of experiences like that. But to me, the downtown and why this is so important is the downtown is where everyone crosses paths. No matter what your socioeconomic status is, no matter what your age is, no matter what your ethnic group is, you know, that is where everyone should feel welcome. Everyone should be trading with each other, experiencing life with each other, and truly is what makes a community versus a grocery-anchored shopping center, which is also important, but you don't have that same experience like you do on the square. It's not the same when you visit a brewery and a grocery shopping center versus a downtown area. (laughs) But on that note, you know, a lot of grocery stores, obviously national credit tenants that come in, they're seeking their own centers. You know, you have the Walmart anchored strip centers that are usually outside of the downtown areas. What are some of the obstacles that need to be overcome in terms of maybe selling a national credit tenant, an appropriate one, of course, but selling a national credit tenant on going to a downtown area? You know, I think, once again, talking about your walk score, talking about the opportunity. First off, if you do have that vanilla shelf space, you do have that real estate opportunity that a national credit tenant would entertain, that's the first step. And if you don't, you have to first get that space in that condition before you're going to ever be able to attract that retailer. To that point as well, if you are able to have a shared parking agreement, you mentioned this earlier, Trent, but talking about more of those regional brands, regional brands that are emerging and coming out of downtowns, they're oftentimes willing to take that chance. If you have a growing brand that was started by a first-generation American, once again, they're oftentimes willing to take that chance. But you've got to prove that first off, you have a customer during their hours, seven days a week, you've got to have some opportunity for parking, for carryout, and you have reasons, you know, you've got anchors, not your traditional grocery anchor or your target anchor, but you've got a large employer. You mentioned a university, you've got a courthouse, things like that that are going to generate a customer for them, you know, at all times of the day or at least during their operating hours. So we'll close out here by asking this because we talk about developing a five-year plan for a city, but I want to know from your perspective, as you look out across the landscape of all of these downtown areas, five years from now, what can we expect to see in the downtown areas in the United States throughout the country? Yeah, I guess I'll speak more to tertiary markets, but we have seen all of you across the country are experiencing a housing crisis. All these communities that are growing, they're very underhomed. Obviously, lots of investment into building new rooftops and things of that nature. That is all to be said that there is a desire from millennials. Millennials are now in their mid to upper 30s, in their early 40s. They're settling down. They have children. 
They're looking at communities like yours. Instead of living in a 600-square-foot apartment in downtown Denver or wherever, you know, that major market is near your community, they're looking for places with good school systems where they can have a family, you know, quality of life. The things that you need to be focusing on are improving your infrastructure, figuring out your anchors and your assets and building around them, whether that's a river, like I said, some of those other businesses, things like that. And then what can you do to work with your property owners, first off, to incentivize them to improve their properties, or secondly, from a code enforcement standpoint, you know, going down that road to have those properties either come up to code or to potentially change hands in the future so that those opportunities are available. Because until those opportunities are available, these things are going to kind of be stalled. But we have seen the communities that have taken a stance on incentives and code enforcement that have had properties change hands, there is a ton of desire, a massive appetite to acquire those spaces, improve those spaces, and ultimately that is how you get those new businesses, those entrepreneurs to want to move in and really be that kind of catalyst for the change. Well, honestly, this is something we could talk about on the podcast <laughs> multiple times a year, multiple days a week. But, I hope we will. I hope we will. <laughs> but, but Elliot, we appreciate you joining us here on the show, and thank you for shedding the light on a lot of what you guys are efforting to do to bring some of those businesses back to downtown and make downtowns across the country more vibrant. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks to both of you. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Boy, thank Elliot for joining us. And, you know, he's someone you can tell probably is very, very enthusiastic about his cause. And talking to him a little bit off the air became apparent that you're going to see over the next two, three, four years, not only people flowing out towards these tertiary markets because of various factors, because of work from home being more popular, because of the housing crunch that we're seeing right now. But also, I think you're going to see retailers, just like Big Lots wanted to do before they kind of curtailed some of these plans. I think you're going to see retailers take a closer look at some of those small to mid-sized markets. One thing that was talked about a lot on the call, and we'll actually discuss it with Jim Payne. He's the mayor of Superior, Wisconsin, who's one of these markets as he talks about attracting retailers to his town. But I think you're going to start to see retailers look beyond traffic counts look beyond average annual household income for a particular area and really try to stake out a claim as maybe number one in a given tertiary market. So I think that's something to keep an eye on kind of over the next two, three, four years as far as retail locations are concerned. Now in our looking ahead story, let's turn our attention to Bonton as they are Apparently, making a comeback to brick and mortar, they were purchased by Brand X, a company founded just last year. Brand X, by the way, has a number of other nameplates, including the nameplates from Stage Stores after they purchased Stage Stores and Gordman's out of bankruptcy. They acquired Bonton as well as some of the other names for those stores, Carson's, Yonkers, among others. Now, one of the reasons I'm looking ahead to this is, of course, they plan on launching a brick-and-mortar location. Actually, a Carson store will be the first one in Joliet, Illinois. But they're looking at opening additional brick-and-mortar stores throughout the next year. They're looking at doing the same 
with stage as well. And obviously this could just be nothing. These assets come fairly cheap because you're talking about bankrupted companies or in the case of Bonton, a company that declared bankruptcy back in 2018 and have kind of been shuffled around from source to source. Originally, their assets were purchased by CSC Generation. They wanted to maybe open the stores, relaunch the sites. That never really materialized. So shifted over now to Brandex, who holds a number of different brands. Now up to 12 nameplates, according to Footwear News. And it's going to be interesting to see if they end up opening these locations and following through on this, first of all. It seems as though... They're sincere about it. They've built out an executive team and so forth. But second of all, I'm curious to see if there's going to be a sense of maybe nostalgia surrounding these brands, whether it's the stage brand in the U.S. South, whether it's the Bonton brand, whether it's any of these other nameplates that they own. Kind of curious to see if nostalgia creeps back in. You know, something when you zoom out and look at the pandemic that we saw a lot of, was nostalgia towards a number of different resources. For example, I, I look at the nostalgia towards baseball cards. We saw the baseball card market absolutely surge. We saw retailers like Target and Walmart begin to have to restrict sales of baseball cards in their stores because of kind of this boom and this circling back towards nostalgia. And we see this also in things like the metaverse. For example, people are building Kmarts in the metaverse. There's this nostalgia that's surrounding a lot of retailers of yore. And I'm really interested to see what Brand X's plans are regarding kind of mobilizing this nostalgia. And if the nostalgia is enough to kind of bring people back to stores, I don't know that it's something that you'll see at least in the next few years with the likes of Sears and Kmart, certainly not under current ownership of their brands, but it also brings to mind what other brands we might see a resurgence of eventually. Will we see Montgomery Wards make a comeback or H.H. Gregg stores make a comeback. We've already kind of seen this with Toys R Us as it is. So kind of looking to see how the nostalgia play works with their potential customers, as well as obviously how they can execute on the retail front in general. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus podcast. Big thanks to McKenna Langley, our associate producer, and thanks to Leighton behind the scenes helping run our social media and tee us up for some show topics. I'm Trent Kling saying so long until next week. Next week, we will be joined by Rick Baker. He is the Senior Vice President of Charging Solutions Sales at Volta, and he's going to talk a little bit about the importance of electric vehicle charging stations in shopping centers. It's something that you're seeing a lot more of in the retail landscape. He's going to talk about the dynamics there. He's going to talk about how retailers utilize those to ensure shoppers stay in their centers for longer. And he's going to discuss some different options retailers have for non-traditional revenue from these charging stations. It's a great conversation, another one in our ICSC interview series. We're looking forward to that. And we hope to be joined once again by all of you approximately seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.